there's something broken with humanity. And Jesus entered in to our lives and into our world to heal and to fix and to save broken humanity. The lawyer in the parable that we call the Good Samaritan asks, Who is my neighbor? That guy who was hit by the car and left dead. And before he even gets to that question, he poses another question to Jesus. He's trying to test Jesus, understand what he's all about, and hopefully entrap him. And he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? What is it that I can accomplish in order that I might have eternal life based on my merit and who I am and how I have done things for people? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's trying to, again, trick Jesus, and yet at the same time, he, I think, is drawn to Jesus. He stands up in the culture that's a beautiful sign of respect. And then he addresses Jesus as rabbi, as teacher. What must I do, teacher? Acknowledging who Jesus is also. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And like every good rabbi, when a question is asked, he responds with another question. Well, what do you understand the law to say? How do you interpret it? What is your understanding? And so the lawyer responds, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus hears this from the lawyer, his basic response is excellent. You have answered well. You have a good theology. You understand the scriptures and the law. How many of us have a good theology? We know the Bible oh so well. How do we respond to our neighbor? How many of us have studied and studied and studied and could answer correctly? And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Now go and do this. Go and do this. Go and, and respond and live this out. And that's the question for each and every one of us who have been journeying with Christ and as we've been studying Scripture together and as we grow and as we live do we just have a good theology or are we allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to pour into our lives and, and, and help us through the power of the Spirit to go and to do? An ongoing verb in the text. It's, it's the idea of keep doing this. The old Syriac version, when it translate this, translates this section, says, do this and you are living I like that. 
You want real life? You want life in Christ? You want life that is living in righteousness? Do this, and you are living. Do this, ongoing, keep on doing this. You see, the lawyer was looking for a list. The lawyer was, give me the steps that I need to do. The lawyer wants the rules. He wants the boundaries. And Jesus' answer is a command, a call to a lifestyle that requires unlimited, unqualified love for God and his people. When the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, strength, and mind, he, he actually quotes something that for us in our simple humanity is impossible to accomplish. Like in Luke 18, we see the same thing. And Jesus is responding to the rich young man, rich young ruler, how hard it is for one to enter the kingdom of God like a camel through the eye of a needle. And the question is, well then who can be saved? Who can ever be saved with with these regulations? How can we ever attain such a thing? And this is Jesus' response to you and me and to his audience, his Jewish audience. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus do to allow us to inherit eternal life? What is impossible with us is possible with God because of his son, Jesus Christ. We almost kick dirt in the face of God when we say, what must I do? Don't we? Is my son Jesus not enough? He's everything. He's all things. He's the only way to salvation. That's the only way it is possible to have life. So live. Do something. Love your neighbor. Love God. There are no rules. There's no lines. There's no list. The requirements are left limitless. We can't do it. The lawyers and the Pharisees all wanted to to do enough and to get there. And when he hears this answer from Jesus, he decides, well, i got to figure out a way to somehow get there. And so he attempts to justify himself, the scripture tells us. He attempts somehow to make himself right. And so the next question comes. Well, who is my neighbor? He's hoping that, that Jesus will answer that his neighbor is his relative or his or his friend, which we see in in Leviticus 19. There was an understanding there that our neighbor was our our friend or a relative. And if Jesus responded with that, which he was hoping, then maybe the lawyer could say, well, I've done this. I've loved my family. I've cared for my friends. And so I can justify myself. I can somehow be in right standing with God. Who is my neighbor? But Jesus goes deeper, doesn't he? And he says, let me tell you a little story. I want you to hear the story from the master. 
And like all these parables, he who has ears, let him hear. But the Lord is ministering to you. These are the words of Jesus. Hear what he calls us to live like. He says, listen, there was robbers, and there was one who was walking along the 17-mile stretch, coming down from Jericho, or coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Desert road, dangerous road. It was known to be dangerous. Even Pompey, when he came in to take over, he had a deal with all of the robbers and the thieves and the thugs, and they put up a great fight against him. It was a dangerous place. And so there was one who traveled along this road. You know, as I seen, as I was studying this, something popped out to me. The man who gets attacked, he's unidentified. And Jesus does, goes to great lengths, I think, to, to leave him that way. The Jewish audience would probably think, well, it's a Jewish man coming down from the temple area. But he's left unidentified, and he's stripped of all of his clothes, and he's beaten so badly that there's no way to communicate with him. And so to identify him, you could maybe speak to him, and, and you could hear the dialect, and you would know who he is. Can't do it. You could look at his clothing and understand where he comes from and his status. He has no clothes. And so the parable leaves this man as just a beautiful human being before God who is broken and damaged. That's who each and every one of us are. That's who the man in the video is. He died, by the way. Who is my neighbor? He was left there. He has no ethnicity. He has no religion. He has no community that we can say... And so, thank God, along comes a priest. And the response would be, yes, good, a priest is coming by. But a priest came by in the parable. And it was known of the priest. They were the elite class. You need to know that. And so he would have been riding by. He was probably just up at temple doing his service. There was a time required to, to go and to to spend time, two to three weeks. And so the idea is he's riding back from his time of doing his practice at temple. He would have gone through ritual purification. He would have been cleansed there and then coming back to minister to his community. And so he rides by on his horse, sees the man, and goes to the other side of the road. If I touch him, I will become unclean. I'll have to stand at the eastern gate. I won't be able to, to minister to my people. I'll be shamed in my culture. And so he passes by, maintaining status, not dealing with this man. He would be more of a problem than it's worth. I need to minister to my people. Then comes the Levite. Now here's one thing that's assumed in the culture. This long road, which went down a hill, 17 miles, you can see pretty well who's in front of you. Typically to go up to, to temple service would be a priest and a Levite 
and usually a, a Jewish layman, and they would serve together. And so the assumption, as you read this, is in the story, when people come down that road, you have a pretty good idea who's on the road, especially when you're on a desert road. And you can see for some great distance, like any of you coming down a hill, and if you want to pass someone who's in front of you, you can see far down. The Levite probably was able to see in the Jewish mind. He came a little closer. He wasn't bound to as many religious rules. He came a little bit closer, but then why didn't he help? This one who went to do spiritual service, why didn't he help? Well, the priest didn't help. Why would I involve myself in affairs where the priest ahead of me left the man? If I help the man, then I'm challenging the priest who is in a higher position than I am. I'm challenging his interpretation of the law and who is my neighbor. I will shame the priest if I bring this man to some help. Word will get out that the Levite helped, but the priest passed by. And so this one who just did incredible service in the temple and sacrificed to God misses the sacrifice that God desires. And he goes on. No one offers aid to the one hit by the car in the street. The Levite has great religious practice, but he isn't practicing the greatest gift of all, of the love of God. And then the story goes on. And the Jewish audience at this time would expect that Jesus would say, and then along came a Jewish layman, one who was partnering with the priest and the Levite. But here comes the twist in the story. Here comes God's heart for humanity. And then along came a Samaritan. The most awful name you could even mention to a Jew. Along came this half-breed that we wanted nothing to do with. Not only that, that the Samaritan becomes the hero in the story. The Mishnah declares this, He that eats and receives the bread of a Samaritan is like one eating the flesh of swine, which was detestable, unclean, against everything they knew, Everything against their culture, defiled. And the half-breed, hated Samaritan that Jesus is telling the story about. It says he has compassion. He has compassion. The Greek is that from his most innards welled up inside of him, the one that you hate the most and are disgusted by, from the core of his being, he ministered to the man broken on the road. His core reaction when he saw the wounded man was to have compassion and to move in love towards him. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asked, which of these do you think became a neighbor? 
and the Jewish lawyer couldn't even say Samaritan. It's disgusting. But he said, the one, the one who showed mercy. And what's Jesus' response? I want you to go and do likewise. We have a dear brother in our body who's a pastor of this church. He's a field staff pastor. He ministers in Indonesia. Nick Armstrong, who many of you know, is a dear, dear brother, and he has for many years now, 16 I believe, has been allowing Christ to live through him to minister to those in his community in Indonesia and all around Indonesia. He takes very seriously God's words, Christ's words, to go and do likewise. And the joy has been to see Christ's life living through him and creating a compassion for the people around him. So I want our dear brother Nick to to share with you what God has been doing in his life and in his community. Nick? By the way, it's been 20 years in Indonesia, just for a correction. (laughs) Uh, This morning I would like to share a story that comes from a network of churches in Indonesia that we've been working with for the last 10 years. Uh, Many of the leaders in this church are aware of Cold Community. Uh, They have Uh, They're aware that they sent us to them to work beside them and with them, and they pray for Cold Community, and uh, they uh, are very thankful for the partnership that they have with Cold Community, even though they may not know where Boise, Idaho is. Some some think it's next to New York City. As a way of background, on December 26, 1996, in the city of Tasik Malaya, West Java, there was 15 churches that were attacked and burned by extremist Muslims. Four people were killed in this attack, and many Christians in Tasik Malaya uh, still live in a great deal of fear because this was not the only time that it had happened. Indonesia is comprised of 190 million Muslims. It's the largest Muslim country in the world. The vast majority of Muslims in Indonesia are uh, of a moderate theology. They very much want to live peaceful lives next to their non-Muslim neighbors. And so the church burnings in Tasik Malaya were an anomaly to their moderate uh, position. However, when extremist Muslims take to violence, that makes the news, and that's how people view Muslims because of that. And in Tasik Malaya, it was a conservative area, an area that was very strongly Islamic, very, very few Christians. Only 1% of the population in that area were Christian. And that area was ripe for creating pockets of extremism. And that's what had taken place in that area. September 2nd of last year, there was a great uh, earthquake that was 7.3 on the Richter scale. Uh, 100 people were killed in that earthquake, and 2,000 people were displaced. Uh, The Christian Church of Indonesia in Tasik, what we call the GKI, the church that we work with, was one of the churches that had been burned in this riot in 1996. But yet they were one of the first to respond to this earthquake, they uh, went to one of the neediest areas, 
to a village called Chikalewetan, and they went to those who were most in need. They went to love their neighbor. And one of the reasons that Chikalewetan uh, was one of the worst hit was because it was a poor village, and in a poor village, they generally will scrimp on construction. They will not use the appropriate amount of cement. They will not use the appropriate amount of rebar and that sort of thing. And so when an earthquake hits, their, their houses are the first to tumble. Another thing about Chikalewetan, uh, besides it being a poor area, is that there are no Christians in this village, not one. All the residents of Chikalewetan are Muslim. The initial response of the church was to have an emergency response to give supplies like tarps and rice and noodles and, and cooking oil uh, and a variety of other things to help them through the first few weeks after this trauma, especially to those who had been displaced from their homes. Uh, and this was the Chikalewetans, the village of Chikalewetans' first encounter with Christians. Although they were thankful for the help, they were also very suspicious as to why it is a church would come to their village to help them. After spending many hours uh, sitting down with the community, various people from the church came to that community and just tried to understand what their needs were and how they could best help. They did uh, a needs assessment and, and uh, Pat Jaja and Pat Indra, two leaders from the church, determined that there were 36 houses that had been totally destroyed. Uh, they were owned by poor farmers who uh, were living under tarps at the time. And uh, so they sat with the community and they said, hey, our church doesn't have enough resources to build these houses. But what we will do is we will, we will try to see if we can raise some money to help rebuild at least some of the houses. I, I think it may have come off a little bit like the checks in the mail, but... That's what they said, and they, they in earnest, went to, to uh, search for a way to help this village. They contacted me, and they contacted a few other churches. We worked together with a church in Jakarta, a church in Central Java, as well as the relief office of CRWRC, the uh, agency that I'm seconded to from Cole. Uh, we, we contacted the Canadian office, and... Through this process, uh, we were able to raise local uh, resources and raise some money from Canada. But in the meantime, during this time we were trying to raise this money, uh, there was a great deal of skepticism on the part of the village. They thought it really, really wasn't in earnest that this church was there just to try to convert people and there was really no earnest uh, or sincere effort to help them. And Paketi, the village leader, who was a very strong Muslim, uh, voiced his skepticism. He said, after all, no one else has come to this village. No one else has come to help us. So why would a church that had been burned down by Muslims, and in particular Muslims from our village were part of that, why would they go and help us? After several months, God blessed us with enough funding and we were able to sit down with this village and explain to them that we had enough funding to buy the building materials for these 36 houses, not only just to rebuild the, the houses, but to rebuild them to an earthquake standard. And so we also had money to train skilled labor to help in that reconstruction. 
Paetti, after we had explained this, there was a moment of silence and Paetti said, we didn't think you were going to come back. We didn't think, we, we had for, thought that you had forgotten us. And uncharacteristic of a man in his position, he had tears running down his cheeks and he, uh, he simply said, wow, thanks for not forgetting us. And a project construction team was then formed. The leader of this uh, construction team was a Christian man. The team itself was made up of Muslims and Christians and the leader of the team was Pat Bambang who had helped us with the earthquake in Jakarta, central Java. And he left his family and his uh, comfort to go live in the village of Chikalewetan along with another Christian man to live six months so that they could rebuild these 36 houses. The condition was that the village had to provide the labor and they had to feed the labor uh, throughout the entire project of which they were willing to do, very willing to do. Everything was going great. 24 houses had been built and then things came to a screeching halt. There was a group of radical Muslims from an organization called the Islamic Defense Front and they came to the village of Chikalewetan to defend their faith against the infidels, against the Christian kafir. According to them, the presence of Christians would defile the purity of their Islam. And so they told rumors about the intentions of the church. They said the church had purchased land in order to build a church, in order to build a Christian school. They said that 10 people that were going to receive houses, they were going to be forced into baptism. Uh, they, were, they were also going to be forced to place crosses into their homes as a condition for receiving these houses. Well, they led a, a mob and at midnight surrounded the house of our leader, Pak Bambang. He was, uh, his life was threatened and he was forced to leave, but all the while praying that God would open a way for them to finish. And it was Pak Edi, this strong Muslim village leader, who came to Pak Bambang's defense. He also said that and proved to the village that the charges and the rumors that were brought against the Christians in that village were totally false and he showed evidence that was overwhelming and after three weeks after talking with the local government after talking with the members of the community they were invited back to finish these 12 houses and I'm just proud to report that as of last week, these 12 houses have just been completed. And but what's really amazing about this story is after the completion, they were invited back. Here you have this village that did not have uh, any Christian presence whatsoever. And now they're invited back in order to help them with their livelihoods, with various agricultural projects. And the church is now welcomed into the village. From this experience, Pastor Jaja from the Church of Tasik commented, To face the wolf, Jesus commanded that we should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. By engaging in acts of loving our neighbor, we hope to sow the seeds of peace and banish the wolves of hatred and prejudice. And Paketi, who had been skeptical about the intentions of the Christians from the beginning, he now said, now my eyes have been opened and I realize I have a new family from an unexpected place. There are many stories like this 
in Aceh, from West Sumatra, other places in West Java, uh, where we see the Spirit of God moving in Indonesia, where we see God changing lives through the church that is learning better to serve their communities, learning better to love their neighbors, and learning better to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I just want to take the opportunity to thank the body here at Cole for supporting this ministry, for praying for this ministry, and to also just extend the greetings from the church in Indonesia to the body here at Cole, even though they may not know where Boise, Idaho is. (laughs) Thank you. Who is my neighbor? Most of us cringe when we think of Muslims, don't we? We tend to label them as terrorists. You know to the core what you think about them. That's our neighbor. We praise God for Nick and those who are ministering in Muslim areas and, and Christians who are willing to go beyond and to reflect the love of Jesus I look forward to the kingdom of heaven to see who will be there with us because some people chose to love their neighbor even though they gave him a flavor of hatred. They chose to go against all the cultural norms and stay away and reached out into the hearts and looked at humanity stripped down broken, and just humanity. God created those people in Indonesia. They're broken humanity who needs a Savior. And so we continue to pray, God, do your work. They're not able to proselytize, but do your work through the way that they love their neighbor in Indonesia and around the world. Who is my neighbor? It's the hated Samaritan who shows up. What's so good about the good Samaritan? The good Samaritan is a reflection of Jesus Christ. That's what's so good about him. The priest, who's so godly, only comes down the road and crosses to the other side. The Levite gets a little bit closer but doesn't enter in. The Samaritan, the scriptures are very clear, comes to the man. Like the video we saw, the others just stood on the street corner. Looks like a guy just got hit by a car. Let me pay the taxi cab driver. The hated Samaritan comes to the man. Broken humanity. And so Christ came to us in full humanity for the sake of broken humanity that we might be saved. The Samaritan comes even though he might be a prime target for the same robbers, but his compassion results in immediate action. You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, I believe that compassion comes from our Creator. Through the power of the Spirit living in us, He creates 
a compassion within us. It's His compassion, isn't it? It's no longer our lives, but Christ who is living through us. And His compassion goes out. Compassion from the Creator to care for humanity. And I just want to encourage each of us that if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart, if He is moving you to compassion, which is His love, His kindness, His mercy, coming from the core, the gut, everything I am, if He is stirring in you, respond in action. Respond. Go help them build the community. God is going to stir in each of you and give you compassion because that's who He is. Do you understand that? That's why you go to Malawi and minister to broken kids who've been abused and attacked. That's why you show up on the streets and and give someone a drink of water or take them to lunch, one who's homeless. Because that's Christ living out through you. And if the Spirit is stirring you, respond. Rise up. Be the hands and feet of Christ. And the Samaritan provides physical care. He binds his wounds. The imagery is of God in his act to save his people. Hosea 6. Come let us return to the Lord. He he has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Isaiah uses the same words. He binds up our wounds. And he pours oil and wine, not only as as medicine, but do you understand? Oil and wine, these were used in the sacrificial system. Are you catching it? He's poured out. Our lives are meant to be a living sacrifice, poured out. That's who we are. We're no longer our own. We're bought with a price. We're poured out. We are to be an offering that is pleasing to God, poured out. Paul says in Philippians 2, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service that comes from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. The Samaritan poured out the true offering which was acceptable to God. Who's my neighbor? A living sacrifice. And he brings them to the inn. The scriptures have the idea that he placed them on his mount, on his animal, and he led the animal to the inn. That place, it's a a status level there were those who would lead animals and they were servants. And the parable seems to indicate that this man became servant, placed this broken man on his animal, and he led him to the inn, a place that was dangerous, a place that was unsavory, a place that would be at great risk to him, a hated Samaritan, This was in a culture where blood revenge took place. If a family member was attacked, wounded, killed, the family members that were alive 
would seek blood revenge. And if they couldn't find the actual attacker, anybody associated with it, they would go after. Do you understand this? And the Samaritan who's hated, hated, binds up this man and takes him to the inn. They would seek blood revenge on him. That's why cities of refuge were set up all over the place. It was senseless revenge. And he brought him to the inn. If he was a stranger to stay there, he would some way be considered part of the attack. He probably took this man to Jericho in an inn there. And you've got to have the image. This would be like a Plains Indian of 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse and offering to stay in the saloon above the bar to take care of this man. Do you imagine that? His whole life is at risk. But he stays. And then the most beautiful reflection of Christ in the story is that he pays the price. If the man couldn't pay and he couldn't, he'd be put into jail and he would be in debt and he wouldn't get out. He has nothing. And the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, pays the price. And not only that, says, let me know what else needs to be paid, if anything. I will cover it all. Who is my neighbor? The one who showed mercy, the lawyer said. And Jesus' call to each and every one of us in this room as followers of Jesus Christ, go and do likewise. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your life in us. I thank you that you move us with compassion towards people. And wake us up, Father, if we're asleep, if we're not listening to your Spirit. Wake us up, Lord, that we would love this broken world and broken humanity. We don't want to just have a good theology, Father. We want to live your life that lives through us, through the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen.